Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garden. It's Thursday, July 21st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Long before Moderna was a household name, it was a secretive startup with big ambitions and more than a little turmoil. Wall Street Journal reporter Peter Loftus joins us to talk about his new book, chronicling the company's remarkable rise. Our colleague Bob Herman joins us to talk about Stat's exhaustive look at the billions of dollars healthcare companies pay their CEOs each year and what those numbers tell us about the state of the industry. We'll also talk about the latest news in the life sciences, including Amazon's big bet in primary care and Biogen's leadership vacuum. But first, a word about Stat's podcast. For far too long, racism has created a crisis in American healthcare. The whole system has failed my niece, and they are continuing to fail women of color. We say something is wrong with us, it's ignored. No one is listening. My name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter and host of Color Code, a new podcast from STAT. I mean, I have a mistrust in the medical establishment and I'm a researcher, like, and, 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 and part of mine is just of how I've seen providers treat my family members. Culico takes a hard look at the forces behind the stark inequities faced by black clinicians and patients. You can find Color Code on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, our education related to health equity kind of sucks, like in med school, right? And I'm tired of having these conversations over and over and over. And someone is like, oh, no, it's not because of X, Y, and Z inequality. And I'm like, actually, it is. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Let's raise the alarm. So you may be wondering who that voice, who was not Meg Terrell, was at the top of our podcast today. Uh, that is Allison DeAngelis. Allison, hello. Welcome to The Read Out Loud. Hi. Thank you for having me in a, a little bit more of an expanded role um, on Read Out Loud. I'm going to be you know, jumping in here a little bit with you guys to, to talk about you know, the life sciences and the news while, while Meg is out. And it's lovely to have you, uh, Allison, and we look forward to what's coming and I just as a maybe toe in the water as to what it's like on this podcast I'm now going to like shove you overboard which is to say that we uh the news came out Thursday morning that Amazon the giant tech and uh commerce conglomerate that we all know and have opinions about I'm sure is paying upwards of four billion dollars for a company called One Medical which is a, a telehealth and like primary care provider which follows years of speculation and some expansion and fear and consternation about how this notion that Amazon, that their next target was going to be healthcare. I remember when they first like hired a guy whose job had the word health in it, the stock prices of the largest hospital systems in the world went down that day just as a sign of just, I guess, the fear people have uh, of Jeff Bezos. Amazon has not disrupted healthcare uh, in the ensuing four or five years, as people probably have noticed. But this deal suggests something is taking place. Like this is the next permutation of whatever it is the company's long-term plan is to make money in primary care. Yeah, I can't wait for the the months of discussion about 
will Amazon really be able to disrupt healthcare like they've they've disrupted so many other parts of our lives from, you know, streaming to, you know, <laughs> to shipping and shopping? Um, I also just got a lot of glee out of reading their their press release with the Amazon's customer obsession. <laughs> I don't know of many other healthcare companies would, that would say that they have a customer obsession um, like Amazon does. Yeah, this is kind of like, I guess this is sort of like a smallish deal, particularly for a company the size of Amazon. I mean, One Medical, you know, they do a lot of telehealth. Uh, they have about a dozen or so, uh, you know, kind of physical care locations around the country. So it's not, they don't have a huge footprint. Now, obviously, you know, Amazon could grow that. So it'll be interesting to see what happens here. Um, like Damien, like you said, you know, people, whenever Amazon is involved with anything in healthcare, right, people just get um, kind of go crazy and speculating about what might happen. So um, this will, this is one of those deals where, you know, you look at it and you say, well, okay, it's a, it's, you know, it's a smallish deal, but there's a lot of potential here for, for, you know, for bigger moves. And I, and I noticed that some of the other, you know, kind of healthcare providers or sort of, you know, consumer facing healthcare providers, you know, like CVS, they have their little mini clinics and, you know, those, some of those stocks were down today uh, in this morning uh, after the deal was announced. I mean, what can we really say a couple of years out about the um, the other healthcare acquisition that Amazon made a couple of years ago? Somebody step in for me. I'm blanking on the name, but... Oh, PillPack? The, PillPack, uh, thank you. Yeah. I remember, I mean, when that happened, there was a lot of talk about, you know, Amazon right. completely, you know, shifting the game there. And, you know... And that hasn't happened. It yeah, hasn't happened you know. yet. Right. Yeah. And that's not to say it's not going to happen, but if we're not getting inklings of it yet... I'm I'm leaning towards it's all staying status quo. Who knows? Um, so shifting gears again, uh, let's talk about our favorite biotech company, <laughs> the one that our listeners love us to talk about every episode. That's Biogen. Uh, they announced earnings this week, uh, and there was a familiar voice on the conference call, that being uh, CEO, or I should call him, I guess, lame duck CEO, wow. Michelle <laughs> Vunatsos. Uh, Damien, I guess he's not quite done yet. I guess not. So people may recall three months ago, Biogen's earnings brought the sort of dual bombshells of one, they would be replacing Michel Vinatsos after his roughly six years in charge. And two, they would be effectively ceasing to invest in the commercial rollout of Aduhelm, the Alzheimer's treatment whose approval and, and rollout had at that point become disastrous. So in the ensuing three months, we, I can think, wondered, well, what are they have to say for themselves? And, and the answer is that there is very little News asked about the CEO replacement plan. Vunatso said it was going as planned, but there was no time frame and there were no updates. And then with Aduhelm, I mean, honestly, did they say the word Aduhelm? It was it was fascinating to say if you just I don't think that they did. Right, if you had been yeah. in a coma, <laughs> and why <laughs> the first thing you would do upon leaving it was listening to Biogen's earnings call, I don't know. But in that case, you would have no idea that this like thunderclap of controversy and stock price machinations and federal investigations had ever taken place because uh, it just didn't come up over the hour long call. I mean, yeah, technically, technically, Aduhelm is still uh, an approved drug for Alzheimer's. Uh, the, obviously, the company stopped marketing, stopped spending money on it, and sales in Q1 were $100,000. So a tiny, tiny, tiny number. You know, there's obviously just a relatively small handful of patients um, who are on uh, Aduhelm. It would be, <laughs> Damien, it would be interesting to sort of go and find the doctor 
who is still prescribing, you know, like the last doctor (laughs) prescribing at your home and like and just ask that doctor, like, why why are you doing that? But maybe that's uh, maybe that's a story for another day. I feel like that kind of leads us into the other topic of conversation, which is this um, Ameren news that came out this week um, about their fish oil derived treatment um, and the questions around the placebo um, that was used in those clinical trials. And, And another situation where, I mean, you now are having physicians that are saying, we don't know how slash in what circumstances we describe, we prescribe this drug. Um, because we just don't know, you know, the the placebo, it, it turns out, um, may not have been so much of a placebo. There may have been a little bit of, of impact on those patients that were taking the mineral oil placebo that could have, you know, kind of skewed the results. Yeah, this is what, what I find so fascinating about the story is because, you know, this all started back in 2019 when, you know, Amarin had, you know, they ran this gigantic cardiovascular outcome study of their fish oil derived uh, pill called Vasipa. And, you know, the study worked, right? I mean, it showed a reduction in, in cardiovascular events, you know, heart attack, strokes uh, at, in favor of, of Vasipa, their fish oil pill versus this, you know, control, which was, a, like you said, Allison was a was a pill uh, made of mineral oil. Um, but at that time, when so I wrote, so I was covering Amarin back then, and so was our colleague, Matt Herper. And and it was interesting when those results came out back then that there was this when you looked at the data that was presented and published, you saw this strange kind of increase in in sort of like a lot of the sort of cardiovascular biomarkers, like some blood based biomarkers that were going in the wrong direction for the control arm, the mineral oil pill. And and so there were questions back then raised. And I remember, you know, our our good buddy, Ethan Weiss, who's a cardiologist out in San Francisco, I, I remember quoting him in the story. And he was like, huh, that's really strange. And, and he sort of, he posed the question back then. It's like, I wonder if what we're seeing here with this benefit, it's maybe not as much the fish oil. It's more that these patients who are, you know, getting the mineral oil, maybe that's actually doing them some harm. And and back then it was that that notion was like just dismissed by the company, just said absolutely not. The 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 cardiologists who presented the data, uh, you know, on behalf of Amarin, of course we're consulting for Amarin, you know, kind of just poo-pooed that idea and this was nothing, this was nothing to worry about. And you know, ultimately the drug got approved. But so now, like, you know, <laughs> Three years later, lo and behold, <laughs> lo and behold, this issue has come up again. So I, just, I, I find that I find that just fascinating that you know we we're now sort of, we're now seeing with new analyses of data, um, you know, and Matt Harper did a story this week, you know, where he went and and he's you know some of the doctors who voted, you know, at the advisory committee voted to approve, uh, approve a CEPA would say like, hey, you know, we might have if we would have known this back then, you know, we might have changed our vote. So anyway, it's just kind of a, an interesting follow up. In parallel to that scientific saga, Ameren is also this like fascinating business case study because, you know, Adam, as you mentioned, leading up to those 2019 data, there was a lot of skepticism that this fish oil pill could actually succeed in this trial and thus become a commercially viable drug. It did succeed. Uh, everybody shocked. The you know stock price goes up. The revenue projections are amended and, and this kind of overnight success takes place. But then, as you probably recall, 
Emerin has trouble defending the patents to this drug. And so suddenly oh, yeah. the commercial opportunity in the United States is completely not negated, but decimated versus what it would have been because of generic competition. So Emerin looks like this company that did this incredible scientific feat of proving that this drug worked and then didn't actually get to reap much of the rewards because of uh, their patent estate cut to the present where everybody's like, wait, are we sure this drug is that great at all? And it just, I don't know, I don't have anything to button that up. It's a bizarre, it's, it's been quite a story. Yeah, reading between the lines of of Matt's story, noting how much of the prescriptions have been, you know, generic due to the patent issues, it kind of feels like regardless of whatever happens with how doctors take this new interpretation of the data, um, this drug is is not the exciting prospect that we thought it was a couple of years ago between the patent issues and the, this new analysis. Um, kind of feels like it takes the the wind out of the sails here. Long before COVID-19 turned Moderna into a household name, it was a brash and secretive startup founded by people unafraid to shout at one another. A new book from longtime Wall Street Journal reporter Peter Loftus chronicles Moderna's unlikely journey from one guy alone in a lab to a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical company. The book is called The Messenger, Moderna, the vaccine and the business gamble that changed the world. It comes out on July 26th, and we've got Peter here to talk about it. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. So, Peter, before we get into some of the details from your book, um, tell us why Moderna as a subject of a book. W- what is it about the company that made you want to report out this, you know, this lengthy story? Well, I think it was um, the fact that, you know, now the company is a household name. But really, before 2020, you know, very few people outside of biotech and VC circles had really heard of it. And it was a company that was only 10 years old. And it did have this history that Damien alluded to and did a lot of reporting on of, of being a brash and secretive company um, and, and promising this, this revolutionary new way of making drugs and vaccines. And so I thought the company itself was an interesting character that could tell the story of the pandemic, you know, from, from the company's perspective, but also give a glimpse into this, this world, this, this ecosystem of of biotech and VC and and how it's kind of evolved in the past few decades. So the book goes back to Moderna's foundations. It has all these fascinating details, but it stands out to me. There's a lot of very colorful characters involved in the founding and the success of the company. So can you tell us a little bit about like the cast of your book? Sure. Well, one character I'll mention who's featured more in the beginning of the book, and then he kind of bows out is uh, Derek Rossi, who was a molecular biologist and a stem cell researcher at Harvard, who um, became involved in doing mRNA research almost as a uh, as a tool in in what his main focus was, which was stem cell research, and he saw the potential for mRNA to um, you know to harness um, the genetic material that it is and and the, the coding in it to to actually. Um, do things in human cells, namely to to make proteins to, or to enable the production of proteins that could have disease-fighting properties. And so um, he's the one that in 2010 uh, kind of got the ball rolling on, uh, on what would become Moderna. So he was sort of the first mover there. And um, but, but within a couple of years, he didn't become part of the company. He stayed in academia. 
uh, was on the board, but within a couple of years had essentially a personality clash with Stefan Bancel, who is really perhaps the main character or one of the main characters in the book, who comes in shortly after Moderna's founding and is still the CEO today. Um, and he's an immigrant from France, uh, an engineer by training, and just a very ambitious, driven person who who really wanted to be the the top guy at a company for his whole career. Um, and he came to the U.S., got an MBA at Harvard, spent some time in big pharma, uh, heading this this um, family-run um, French diagnostic company for a while, but really itching to to get in at or near the beginning of a company and be the one that takes it from, you know, just it, its small, humble origins to something big. As you mentioned, Moderna is now one of the most recognizable drug companies in the world. Um, but its success was by no means guaranteed. What were the early years like operationally? You know, some of those those walls that, that they hit. Right. Well, I think they, you know, there there was the basic science. Um, you know, when the company was founded, messenger RNA was, I mean, kind of just an idea. I mean, it was, it was, it was, it had been validated to the extent that it was, uh, it was shown to do things in lab tests, uh, in animal testing, um, and, but it hadn't really been tested in people, and so. They, they, there were, there's inherent challenges in using mRNA as a medicine or a vaccine. And so in the early years, Moderna had to just find different ways to, um, you know, to, to further, mo- to modify the RNA so that it wouldn't cause an extreme um, inflammatory response in testing in people and in cells. And, um, and then to, to, to find a, a, a delivery mechanism so they 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 hit some walls there, um, and to the point where you know there were days when Bonsell would come home and just think, I don't know if I don't know if this is going to work, and so that was on the scientific side, and then financially, um, you know they had no sales, they had no products until 2020, till the very end of 2020, and um, and so they were they were being funded by by VC investment, other investors, and just burning through that cash. Finally, in 2013, Moderna convinced uh, AstraZeneca uh, to invest. And I think it was about $240 million up front. You know, from then on, I think financially they weren't as challenged, um, but they still continued to face uh, challenges just proving the science and proving that this was actually going to work in people. And that went on pretty much right up until 2020. People who know Moderna, I think, know about the sort of volatile nature of uh, the culture inside, particularly in the early years. And I, I think what struck me is something that you said that, uh, you know, Stephen Hogue, who, who is a, a former McKinsey guy, was actually like the calming influence inside the company. What does that say about Stefan Bensel's, um, you know, his personality, the way he runs a company? Yeah, well, that's a good point and well taken. Um at that time, Moderna was still growing. They weren't, he wasn't coming in to cut and be like the hatchet man. And I do think, you know, if you've, if you've talked to Stephen and, or seen his public appearances, he is a pretty even keeled guy. And so it's not hard for me to imagine that, you know, day to day in a comp- inside Moderna, that he may have brought that calming presence 
you know, Boncel explains it when he's questioned about his style that like he just felt under the gun to make the company succeed and that he, he didn't want he didn't want to be the one that killed the company because he didn't drive people enough. Um, so, he you know, I think there's evidence that he has tried to change his style. And obviously now it's a bigger company. So there's there's more of a buffer between him and I would say most of the employees, which wasn't the case in the early days. Um, I think he does say about the early days that, you know, he wishes he had made it uh, clearer to people upon hiring them that things were going to be intense and, and of a certain nature. How was the initial Moderna pitch received at Flagship when they were going out and talking to VCs? What was the reception like? Well, um, so it was... It was pretty much Derek Rossi's uh, pitch, um, and he kind of he got paired up with Bob Langer. Eventually, some of the other co-founders. Um, I mean, he did in his pitch um, talk a lot about the use of mRNA in in stem cell research, and in um, even as like as as a toolkit for researchers to use, and. So, so flagship, and I think even Bob Langer, you know, they heard that and they, they kind of said, yeah, yeah, I, I could see that. But they also, I think, just saw the therapeutic potential. At some point, fairly early on, the 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 talk of mRNA by Derek Rossi and others um, really led like New Bar Fayon to start to think of this as, can we turn this into the next Genentech? You know, I heard that phrase a lot, the next Genentech kind of held up as as just the model and the gold standard of what biotech can be. And I think by that they meant like not just not just a company that's going to get its first drug out at some point and that's going to be great. And then maybe a couple more. But it was more of a focus on mRNA as a, as a platform. And Peter, what are your thoughts about Moderna's ability to develop drugs. You know, we, we talk about drugs versus vaccines. Obviously, they've had great success with the COVID vaccine. Um, critics of Moderna say, you know, the vaccines are a little bit easier to do with mRNA than a therapeutic with a drug. Um, you know, you've done a lot of reporting on this company. You've talked to a lot of people. What's, what's the outlook for the future of Moderna w- in relation to, you know, developing drugs? I, I think it's uncertain. I think, um, you know, I think the COVID experience um provided a certain level of validation that mRNA could be used for a vaccine against a respiratory virus. But once you start going from there and say, and 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 there's more, there are more respiratory viruses that it could target, and they're going after things like RSV uh, and influenza. Um, those are some of like the near-term potential next candidates for Moderna. And I think there's there's reason to think that they might work. Um, but then even within the vaccine realm, once you start expanding, you know, they're developing a vaccine for HIV, and which has just been such a tough nut to crack. And, and so many past attempts at a vaccine have failed using other drug technologies. And so, you know, there's no guarantee that mRNA would be the silver bullet for that. So then, yes, then once you get past vaccines and into drugs and therapies. Um, you know, this was one of the one of the reasons for their pivot uh, about halfway into their existence to focus on vaccines was because 
of the issue of, of repeat dosing um, using mRNA and, and lipid nanoparticles to treat disease, you know, on an ongoing basis, say for a chronic disease or even for cancer where it's months and months of treatment, um, you know, they were, they were running into safety concerns. And so, I mean, I don't think that's gone away. I think that, um, you know, that they have to, um, that they, they, they say they have made improvements to things like the LNP, the lipid nanoparticles they use and, and other aspects of mRNA. Um, but I do think it remains very much remains to be seen whether this could have a, a successful application in, in treatments for people who are already sick as opposed to preventive vaccines. So Peter's book is called The Messenger, Moderna, The Vaccine, and the Business Gamble that Changed the World. You can pre-order it online or pick it up next week once it's released. Peter, thank you for joining us. All right. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to you guys. Over the past four months, a team of stat reporters and researchers dug into the SEC filings of roughly 300 publicly traded healthcare companies to assemble the most accurate and comprehensive picture of what top executives made in 2021. And in the event that you didn't read the results, you probably wouldn't be surprised to hear that many of the pay packages were massive, but none was bigger than the $453 million dollars. $453 million earned by Regeneron Pharmaceutical CEO Len Schleifer in 2021. Yeah, in total, the roughly 300 healthcare CEOs brought home $4.5 billion in total pay. That's with a B. That is enormous wealth for a relatively small group of executives who control and influence the U.S. healthcare system. Joining us now to offer more details and perspective on Stats Report on healthcare CEO compensation is our colleague Bob Herman. Bob, welcome to the Read Out Loud. Thanks for having me. Uh, First time caller, long time listener. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Is Joe Flacco elite? That's my first question. <laughs> well, let me tell you, Damien, I don't know about that, Joe Flacco. It, it's Bob from Revere. I love it. <laughs> so, okay. Um, executive compensation stories are often criticized as, you know, a way to kind of gawk at, at people's wealth. Um I myself am am guilty of flipping through those slideshows of, you know, billionaire assets and celebrity assets. Um, Is is it a valid criticism that this is just, you know, kind of voyeurism or can we learn something from these types of stories? Yeah, I I think you're right. Like there's a certain uh, like everyone just kind of gravitates to compensation stories because the numbers are, are so large that it kind of it doesn't. Uh, comprehend to most people. But obviously, like the SEC requires companies to post these numbers. It kind of describes the incentives, not just, I guess, of healthcare, but of uh, kind of, you know, the public markets writ large. And um, I think it's totally fair game to look at them. And um, if and within healthcare in particular, uh, it really does a good job of highlighting, I think, why uh, maybe reforms are so hard to come by. And it's because so much money is tied up and uh, and keeping things the same. If so much of your pay is uh, tied to stock, that means you're going to do things that will increase that stock price. So that means sell more drugs, perform more procedures, open more uh, you know hospitals and clinics, uh, adopt more technology, even if all of that's unnecessary. Uh, so uh, I think that's uh, something to keep in mind with with these pay numbers. So let's talk about the list itself. How was it put together? Who's on it? And can you give us kind of a snapshot of what you learned putting it together? 
Yeah, so uh, we looked at 300 of the largest publicly traded healthcare companies uh, by market cap. Uh, notably, this does exclude uh, nonprofit hospitals and nonprofit insurers who are a big part of the system, but their compensation numbers just aren't reported in the same ways. Um, so yeah, the, the in terms of like the list of healthcare companies, it's across the board. So in addition to biotech and pharma, there's hospitals, there's health insurance, there's medical device, there's health tech, uh, equipment and suppliers. Uh, if it's a large healthcare company, it's probably on this list. And to Adam's point, the, one of the big headlines here is just the, the sheer amount of uh, wealth that came into play last year. Um, we're talking $4.5 billion among a very small, exclusive uh, class of healthcare executives. And um, our colleague, Emery Parker, uh, helped build some context around that. You know, for example, with Lynch Liefer, he made, you know, almost a half a billion dollars on his own. That's the equivalent of almost, uh, you know, 100 uh, private jets. So I was part of the team that worked on this project, and uh, one of the more interesting aspects of the analysis, and this actually came from you, Bob, was the method we used to calculate the true or what we called the realized value of the stock and the options that were awarded to these CEOs. You know, And we did that rather than rely on the more commonly reported estimates of fair value that you often see. So Bob, can you, can you play a little bit of math tutor for us here? Explain to our listeners the way we crunch the numbers uh, and you know, to come up with this realized stock and option gains um, for, you know, for the total, to come up with this total compensation number for CEOs. Yeah. So the, the SEC requires uh, all companies to list how much the, their top executives make. And normally there's this very convenient uh, summary compensation table that, you know, kind of tosses some numbers out there. Uh, but importantly, uh, those stock option and award numbers, they're called they're estimated fair value. Um, that just means they're kind of the stock and option that were granted in a given year. Um, a lot of economists and, and some analysts just ca- kind of call them fictional numbers because they don't really represent what someone's actually putting in their bank account or anything. Um, but lower down, if you scroll just a little bit down in, in these filings, you'll find um, options that have vested and were exercised. And that gives a way more representative idea of what someone uh, actually earned or what their stock uh, is actually worth, what its value is now. And those are the numbers that we we applied here. So we took out those fictional numbers up top and we put in these more accurate numbers uh, from down below. And that gave us, uh, you know, kind of the, our data sets. And let me just give a quick explainer about, you know, how this kind of works in both ways. So um, Joe Hogan, the CEO of Align Technology, the maker of uh, Invisalign T-straighteners, uh, he made $21.6 million last year based on the fair value estimate of his stock. That's the number that's up top. Um, but if you actually factor in the, the stock that actually vested and was exercised, he actually made closer to $113 million. It's a $90 million difference. Um, importantly, this does work the other way too. Uh, Vivek Garapali, he's the CEO of Clover Health, uh, one of, a startup health insurer. Um, his pay package was described as $390 million, but that's based on the fair value estimate of his stock that was given to him. There's no basis in reality for that. He did not actually get $390 million. Um, instead, he actually got basically nothing uh, because uh, none of his stock had uh, vested or was exercised. So it's not that uh, uh, Vivek Arapali is poor by any means, but he just did not get that pay package that was uh, that was described there. So those are two 
kind of opposite ends of the coin there um, with regards to, you know, how much executives make. But let's return back to kind of the big number, Lynch Lifer over at Regeneron. How did he earn $453 million last year? And, you know, when you reached out out to the company, what did they say about his compensation? Yeah. So uh, Lender Schliefer is obviously the outlier of this group to make a half a billion dollars. And a vast majority of that, almost all of his $453 million came from uh, realized stock options. Um, and it makes sense because, you know, he's been at Regeneron, this very uh, long running, successful biotech company. They have a lot of injectable drugs at work. They're very profitable. So obviously, Regeneron's stock prices uh, increased a lot over time. And, Re- and Len is one of the founders. So naturally, he has a lot of stock and is starting to come and vest and exercise. And so, yeah, when we reached out to the company, it was kind of, you know, the standard fare uh, that we get uh, from companies when we reach out. Uh, you know, like, oh, you know, he's been here for so long. Uh, our The value of our stock has uh, gone up bananas. So that, uh, you know, the, the pay package that you're referencing uh, it's just reflective of stock that he has had over time. And that's all well and true, but it, it doesn't also uh, detract from the fact that he, the value of his stock is almost a half a billion dollars in 2021 alone. So, um, but yeah, it, it, it's Len is, I think, uh, obviously the extreme outlier example of uh, someone's stock that has gained a ton of value uh, in one year in particular. It's interesting you mentioned you know, Regeneron's response and, and responses in general point out the fact that basically these CEOs' compensation numbers are so high because the stock has gone up and they're incentivized to make the stock go up, as, as you mentioned. But the question of, as you described, whether those incentives align with like what's good for not just the world at large, but even the shareholders of the company. But then when, once the numbers reach a certain level, you reach the point when you talk to like shareholder rights activists or just anyone who kind of lives in this world, where it's just like, who decided that any one individual, like that it's good for society to compensate any one individual to this level, which I feel like tends to become the more like philosophical discussion when you talk to like thoughtful people about these lists where it's obviously no crime has been committed here. We can gawk at the numbers. People can decide that it's a sideshow or it's not. But on some level, it's like that's so much money. That's not that great of a point. I was going to ask you, um, speaking of things that the SEC now requires, uh, among them, more recently, is a ratio of the CEO's pay versus the median pay of a worker at that company. You guys analyzed those packages as well across those 300 filings that you dug into. And I was curious, what were some of the takeaways from that analysis? So the SEC has required this median employee um, uh, salary be reported since 2018. And it's it's really quite interesting because uh, it does shine a light into kind of like where the rank and file stand. And maybe this isn't surprising to uh, the listeners of the Read Out Loud. Uh, but yeah, I, those who work in biotech and pharma uh, make uh, by far the most. Uh, many, many companies, biotechs in particular, offer pay packages well north of $250,000 a year. Um, and just for comparison, the, the median household income in the U.S. is about $67,000. Um, it's worth noting that some of that pay uh, does come in the form of stock. And we don't really know um, if, you know, what the actual realized gains of that stock are. So those numbers can be a little squishy, but I think it's still fair to say that, you know, biotech and pharma employees make healthy uh, and comfortable salaries. Um, but if you look at the other side of the, sp- uh, of the spectrum, uh, it's a lot of people. There are, there are quite a few people that uh, the median employee does not make a lot of money. You think about uh, companies, uh, suppliers that rely on a lot of uh, cheap foreign labor, um, you know, companies like Align Technology, which you mentioned, or Avanos Medical, which makes, you know, medication pumps. 
And the median employee at some of those companies can be as little as $6,000 a year, $13,000 a year. It's really uh, not a lot of money. Um, uh, but domestically, uh, importantly, uh, there's a lot of uh, companies that deal with providers that actually give care that pay their employees, you know, around poverty level wages, a little bit higher. And a lot of them are with companies uh, that involve caring for the most vulnerable uh, patients out there. Think nursing homes, home care, assisted living. Um, it's not uncommon for some of those companies to pay a median uh, employee twenty thousand dollars, thirty thousand dollars. They're lucky if a median employee makes forty thousand um, dollars. And these are people that uh, are really, you know, doing uh, some obviously important work, but it's it's unglorified. It's hard. Um, and a lot of them are part time, but it's, you know, I think that's a big, re it's, it's emblematic of one of the problems in healthcare is it's so hard to take care of the elderly and, and the most vulnerable and frail, because those people aren't paid well. Um, so that that was, a, that was another, I think, important finding of this. So you can read the entire package of CEO compensation stories that Stat compiled on our website. I want to give a special shout out to Kate Sheridan. She is uh, heads our research department, and she really kind of kept us all on track as we were crunching all of these numbers. Uh, and also, Bob, you mentioned uh, Emery Parker, our data product manager. And yeah, he created some really cool interactive graphics that you can play around with uh, on the website. So check those out. Bob, great work on this. Uh, thanks for joining us. And I assume that we are going to be doing this all over again next year. Yeah, thanks for having me. This, the, the project was a ton of fun. And, and absolutely, we'll be doing this every year uh, until the sun explodes. So expect more <laughs> for sure. Which is going to be next year. So there you go. It's going to okay. be next year. <laughs> That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke, and our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you liked about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you made more money than Len Schleifer last year. I'd love to know. You can do all of that by sending us an email to readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. And if you don't like what we do, then... Don't don't reach out. <laughs> and and tell us what you think of our new co-host Allison. Oh, don't uh, do that. And with that, we will see you next week.